and welcome to the penultimate episode of the Outside Centre Film Podcast for 2014. Good to see you again, Paul. Good to see you. And uh, we're going to get through all the Christmas pleasantries at the end. We're going to be looking back at uh, some Christmas films we'd like to talk about. Um, And let's see if any of these three last reviews of the year will make it onto uh, our final film of 2014 list, either The Salvation from Denmark, Shady from Japan, or Mr. Turner, a British film. We'll see. But before we get to those, Paul, news. And uh, as chance would have it, we've had two of the biggest film-related news stories of the year all at once. So we'll start with yours, and uh, the rather interesting uh, hacking slash, uh, inverted commas, scandal that took place in uh, Sony Pictures recently. And uh, we won't be seeing the interview anytime soon, not that I think we'd want to. Having said that, we are going to talk about the interview, but we are going to see it because Sony have changed their mind this morning. Oh, have they changed their mind? They've changed their mind and said they're exploring ways to get it out, which I actually think links into your news. It does, uh, Because I think that's how they should get it out, but we'll come to that in a second. So the interview, it's a film about the assassination of uh, Kim Jong-il in in North Korea. (laughs) And and obviously, as a result of that, North Korea has hacked into the Sony thing and, and got all the information and supposedly uh, stuff from 50 years worth of Sony Pictures, because Sony Pictures is actually, they took over one of the major studios, so it's, it's for like Universal or whatever it is, it's one of those from before then United Arts or whatever it is. So they've got all that information, which which I would love to see, actually, because it details people's salaries and their cuts. Sure, sure. And, and that's been actually much more of an embarrassment, what they're revealing about Sony, for example, that they want Idris Elba as the next James Bond. Fascinating, interesting, uh, great stuff. Uh, I, I love the idea of... Uh, of, of a nation breaking into the computer system of a corporation, uh, not in a kind of criminal way, but just because it's, it's a fascinating way that the world is now so digital and yet so few people have any clue what they're doing. I saw a, a kind of news item about security of, of kind of hacking, and most corporations have no idea how to do it effectively or well, and this is a wake-up call but there's wake-up calls every six months for the last 10 years on hacking, and it makes absolutely no difference because often hackers are, are years ahead of, of a security firm. But to me, the key about the interview is, is, is they, they should release it. And I think now, after all of the problems that they've had, they should release it for free to absolutely everybody because that if you want revenge on a nation that you see as a dictatorship and oppressive that's tried to stop you doing and actually you did agree to not show it now your ultimate revenge is give it to everybody for free Uh, even if it's going to cost you money i think the, the kind of kudos that would give the company would be enormous but my biggest problem is is the fact how they decided not to show it, and the fear that that they kind of bore into. If you live in a nation now that works on the basis of fear, and I don't mean South Korea, North Korea, I mean America, I mean Britain, we are all now made to live in such fear that we've given away all of our freedoms of both expression, of of what we do on the internet, of everything. So that we, we as individuals, as citizens, we have given all of that freedom away to allow the state to spy on us. So it's no wonder when something actually fairly trivial and stupid happens that a corporation becomes as afraid because it taps in to our being afraid. And I think that that is a terrible indictment of 
the way we now live in the West, that we have given away our freedom. We live in fear. And I think that is, that's what this says to me, the whole tragedy of it. And one of the best ways about going at, of undermining that is for Sonny to give it away absolutely free. You know, I don't doubt the film will be shit. It's vulgar. I'm not a big fan of Seth Rogen. I think he's done some good comedy in bits in mm-hmm. films. Yeah. But mainly he resorts to dick gags, shit gags. And there's lots and lots of dick gags. Absolutely. I've read about and I think, And I don't mind dick gags and I don't mind shit gags. Well, I like Dumb and Dumber. But actually, if that's what you revert to when you've got a gap, rather than thinking about either plot, narrative or a decent joke, that's why I'm not such a big no. fan of his movies. Take the Sydney Siege, which which will be a film before long, and we'll probably will, will review it. It was a nutter who got a gun, but it was dressed up as terrorism. You know, he may have had some religious beliefs and he may have exploited that, but it's a nutter. It doesn't warrant us giving away all of our freedoms. And that's often the case, that it gets all blown out of proportion. And the interview is another example of that. Say something got stolen off a computer or whatever, it makes no difference. In fact, if anything, it shows up corporations are quite sinister in, in how they treat and believe other people are. And to me, what the why the interview was cancelled was not because of the film. It's because they've made a deal with the hackers not to release any more embarrassing stuff about Sonny, about Sonny calling Leonardo DiCaprio despicable, calling Angelina Jolie a half-wit. That's what they wanted to stop. Stuff that we know already, really. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, what's interesting is, you know, the Sydney Siege thing. We talked about Michael Haneker doing films of that ilk. Yep. Yeah, the, the, the human nature and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's just carrying on from that, really, isn't it? We Absolutely. talked about the 71 Chronicle uh, Fragments of Chance, which we talked about last, last yeah. podcast. But um, the, uh, I've got a different angle to the, this interview thing, and that is the fact that American Hollywood was so happy to put Norbit out <laughs> like, without hesitation. I wish that film was bloody hack because that was a truly, truly atrocious piece of offensive cinema that had no benefits. This is is of, of equal type by the sounds of it, what I've read, and yet there's obviously an uproar that it's been hacked. It's like, I'm sorry, but things kind of come around in a full circle sometimes. So for the fact that Norbit should have been hacked by some group, any any ethnic group in the world should have hacked Norbit because everybody's attacked. Not even in a self-deprecating, interesting, entertaining way. In, in an actual rude, offensive and... Racist. A, racist and, and ignorant way. Ignorance is the word I'm looking yep. for. Yep, So I, I'm glad that Sony have been made to feel embarrassed by this because they should, America should have had this for Norbit, as I said. But either way, even if it does come out for free, it's not my thing. I won't be watching it. And But I do agree that this has been blown up out of all sorts of proportions. It really is just extremely tiresome to me. Absolutely. And you hear a lot of people, you hear like the news people talking about it. They don't even fully understand what they're talking about. Yep. They think Sony still make TVs and that's all they do. Yeah. So, you know, let's move on from that to the other big news story of the week. And uh, that is the uh, the temporary demise of Pirate Bay. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it's it's interesting. Um, again, again, and again, and again. Indeed, what indeed what happened was basically there's a raid in Stockholm. Servers were shut down, and uh, for a brief period, Pirate Bay was completely off, no more. Now, it was interesting, and I say that, of course, because a report came out the day after the raid, stating that internet torrenting activity was as high as ever. So probably the same people that tracked users of Pirate Bay managed to track the same IP users using. Popcorn Time and other websites that do a very similar thing. So 
they, they're now they're up against it. Now, I think we were honest enough, Paul, to admit, uh, as we you know record this podcast for the majority of this year, we were sitting underneath a pile of bought DVDs of a considerable quantity. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, might add, my collection isn't too shabby either. Uh, so I'm, I think we're both honest enough to admit that we use Piper Bay. Uh, indeed. Uh, but but why? Why did we use it? And what are, what are the good things and the bad things about this news? Well, first of all, we have to use our own personal experience. We'll come to you in a bit. Yep. Why do I? Why have I used Pirate Bay, and why will I use it again when it comes back in its new guise? It allows me to explore films that will never get released in the UK, either at the cinema, on DVD, or streaming. Now I realise I'm perhaps, but an extra in a Ben Hur film. Sorry, in Ben Hur, in comparison to the majority of people that use Pirate Bay for more sinister, lazy, ignorant reasons. But that is why I use Pirate Bay. If I like something, having downloaded it on Pirate Bay, I will search for the DVD and import it, mm-hmm. which is what I have to do most of the time because most things never get released in the UK. It's because I like owning something. Mm-hmm. I like owning Blu-rays, DVDs, as do you. And I will forever, if I see something on Pirate Bay, which was only available on Pirate Bay, downloaded it, enjoyed it, bought that DVD, I will therefore, in the future, look out for all the other DVDs of that director. I won't like all of them, but mm-hmm. I will own them. Yep. And only Pirate Bay made that possible for me. If it's available legally, we're not even there is not even not even news to be had here. But the point is, is that a lot of interesting world cinema you still cannot get on the many, and I'll admit, many generally speaking decent quality legal ways of watching films in this country. But some of them are simply not possible without Pirate Bay. Now something a lot something a lot of other people have said is actually something I've just alluded to, the concept of ownership. Having access to a huge library, for example, Amazon Prime Instant Video, Netflix Streaming, having access to a huge library is actually not the same thing as owning the films yourself. You have access to these films, like you have access to a public library, but you cannot actually own the books in the library. You cannot own the films in the in the film library. And the libraries, generally speaking, and of course we know the names we're talking about, they are still devoid of choice. We have not reached the, re- the, the we have not reached the quantity that and quality that I want. Where, as we talked about last week, with that random German film hidden away on Virgin Media somewhere, where you have to get a bloody so all sorts of different search menus up to find it. It should be labelled as 2015 Oscar nomination, but it isn't. It's labelled as God knows what. So, you know, generally speaking, the quality of product that we can legally watch films in in this country is poor. Cinema is still overpriced for what you get. You are not guaranteed a quality seat in terms of how comfortable it is. You're not guaranteed a peaceful, free experience because you cannot trust other people in cinemas. You, you know, Again, the ticket prices are obviously too much for that reason. You're not even guaranteed a good quality cinema screen. I don't know about yourself, Paul, but I've seen one or two over the, over the, over the years where there's a blob of something in the corner. The lens hasn't been cleaned, so you see this filter of dirt. A tear. A tear, even. It's it's horrific. Now, again, there are some alternatives. I would say the best person is Luffville. In fact, when we talk about the list for the, for the next podcast, where we're looking back and trying to choose a film of the year each, most of the ones that are on your list and my list are available on Luffville. Luffville are quite good at foreign cinema, but they're still not perfect at it. Netflix has got very little foreign cinema on it. Blimpbox, I don't think, has got any subtitle films on it, apart from hard of hearing subtitles for American Hollywood films. Uh, probably, I would also say, 
Curzon Cinema are doing quite are doing some quite interesting things by having some art house foreign language cinema on their app, so you can watch it on your tablet, on your computer, on your smart TV. At the same day, it comes out in their cinemas. Yep. But where are Curzon Cinemas? They're in London. Mm. So what else can we do but watch that app? And of course, they don't have everything because it's a very small, very small branch of cinema. So again, it's choice and, and lack of. Um, and the, I just want to finish my bit of this by saying. As, and this fits into what you said about the interview. Things happen for a reason. Why was the interview hacked in the first place? Because it could potentially offend. Why have Sony acted like this? Because of the fear. And we have to put up with that fear. Why is, why allegedly, is £6.1 billion lost in the industry every year because of things like Pirate Bay? For the reasons I have said, there is a lack of satisfaction with film consumer, consumerism in not only in the UK, all over the world. It is simply not good enough. The turnaround is too slow. You have not got the guaranteed quality. You can buy a Blu-ray, it'll be nothing more than, an, than a DVD upscale. Yep. Now, when you pay £15 for a Blu-ray, that is not good enough. Yep. And once you pay that £15, that's it. They've got their money, you've got a product you're disappointed with. And a very final point for me. Where, in what other walk of life do people get paid twice for? Because what a Tom basically is, somebody has bought a DVD, ripped it onto a computer, converted it into a torrent form, and put it on Pirate Bay. That per- that person, that one individual DVD has been torrented, but it's been paid for, and the, the, the relevant people have got their money. Now, we get paid once a month, twice a week, whatever, you know, your circumstance. You don't get paid the same money more than once every month. You get your hour paid, your week paid, and your month paid. You don't get that paid twice, three times, four times in the same month. So why should anybody get paid more than once for the same DVD that sold? Now, I admit, obviously, some torrents spread like wildfire, so you can have the same torrent doing the rounds, and therefore you're stopping people essentially buying different copies of the DVD. But generally speaking, that is how torrents work. So if you want to pay me more than once for the same work in the same day, go ahead. But I don't see why that, should also, that, that shouldn't apply to, to films as well. But that's another point as well. So that's my entire take on this uh, Pirate Bay thing. Where do you want to attack it from? I, well, I think it's very interesting. I, you know, and I agree. You know, I have used it occasionally because you have to. And I think that is the key problem. And I think the very first time I ever used it was because I wanted to watch something that was available... Uh, to buy everywhere else in the world except the country I live in. That's right. And it was kind of like, well, actually, you're forcing me to do this. If I want to be, and you are you are promising me all the time, instant gratification, instant fulfilment, and then you denied me on this occasion. And it was just some uh, shitty TV programme. Uh, but it was kind of like, and I tried to buy it repeatedly yeah and, and it was like you can't buy it you can't buy it you can't buy it so you, you had to resort to that i i've never believed that it damages the industry in the slightest no, of not. i think it benefits it enormously i think the kind of stuff that people see often makes them go out 
and watch yep. those artists, those producers, those filmmakers, both in the cinema and buy their DVDs and track down and pay to own, see and watch previous work. And it just... So, for example, I think cinema is at one of its great... Uh, expansion moments and it's doing better than it's done for a very long time it's no coincidence that that's after 10 years of Pirate Bay before that cinema was dying and it's before you know ISO hunt and all of those kind of things so this this crap about it damaging the industry is just rubbish but I think the key point and it's what you're saying is is a lot of the films that we've talked about will never be released here. We'll never have subtitles. And again, subtitle sites are essential, both for hard of hearing people, deaf people, because a lot of producers don't subtitle their stuff. But equally, it's a love of cinema, yeah. that people want other people to see the product of their nation, their favourite filmmakers. And a lot of subtitles are homemade. That's why they can be quite variable, uh, which is both funny and sad in itself. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's cinema is now making more money. These corporations are now making more money because of, not despite of things like Pirate Bay. And in fact, they need to embrace it much more effectively themselves so that they lead on getting all film to all people at a reasonable price. Because I agree with you, people do want to own it, people do want to pay for it, and people actually want to pay for quality. And I think you're right, they probably will try and get some stuff for free to see what it's like. So, But if they like it, they'll pay. And if they don't like it... And another thing I think is really interesting is is people do it out of habit. Yeah. So, for example, I know people who've done it. I, I don't do it personally myself because I'm not that particularly into music. Who actually have got hundreds of years of music. They would have to live to be hundreds of years old to listen to it all. Well, you're not for yourself, <laughs> but to be honest. And actually... They just do it because it's a habit. And it makes no difference. They still go out and buy music and they still go out and buy the music they love. But actually, they just do it because it's almost like an addiction and a habit. And it actually doesn't mean anything. And it isn't detracting from anything whatsoever. So uh, I, I think it's actually been the biggest boost for the industry there is. And I think it will continue to be. And I think it's essential. In a way, it enables people to... It's democratised it so that people can talk about it and get it out there about things that they never would have seen and really popular stuff. There's a lot of popular stuff that I would never go and see that actually I've then paid for and been to see because I've I've heard someone review it on a podcast who has obviously downloaded it in advance, but I would have actually not given it the second time of day. So it's it, to me it's win, 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 win all the way. Yeah, absolutely. And would we really be doing this in an ideal world if everything was so accessible for us, we'd probably be... Some people obviously would, as you say, for habit reasons and for other reasons. But generally speaking, those of us that really care, we want to. You, but it's not the environment, I don't think, to see, for example, at your local art house cinema, there's some good ones in Wolverhampton, there's some good ones all over the UK. Oh, there's a random Bulgarian film on at the weekend. Yep. It is not the right environment now to chance your arm... To go and see that film, not because of the film itself, but because of everything else, you are paying a lot of, you are paying too much money for a chance. Whereas if you download before, if you download, you can obviously 
in the in the comfort of your own home without the annoying people potentially with the quality with the quality that you can control you can convert it to a different format if you want to to make it look better put it onto a cd if it helps all of that stuff will help the experience and then if you like it you can spend the same kind of money having it in permanent form for your collection without having to go to a cinema and do all that. And of course, I'm not encouraging people not to go to the cinema, but I'm just saying that is the issue we have. It is too risky these days. I only go, I honestly now only go to the cinema if there's a director I want to see. When the next Kuramaki film comes out, when the next Von Trier film comes out, when the next Haneke film comes out, Pixar, those are pretty much four, when the next Paul Thomas Anderson film comes out. Four, five directors that I need to see in my life, I will go to the cinema and pull up with all the stuff I mentioned. But I think you cannot do that for anything other than those people. Because it is simply an experience that is not worthwhile. Pirate Bay will be back. There's no two ways about it. In fact, it probably already is back as we're talking right now in a different form. I think it's called Old Pirate Bay or something. Yep. There's also one of the other men- names I mentioned as well. There's tons of different things. It's just interesting to actually see. I enjoyed reading people's comments about it. And of course you had the snooty people saying, well, you should, you should do this, you should do that. But generally speaking... A lot of people are like us, that are doing it for exactly the right reasons. And I'm quite pleased with that. So I, I would say almost everybody is doing it for yeah. the right reasons. But the other thing I would say, and it's very interesting, these movie companies and movie makers, one of their largest streams of income now is VOD, yeah. Video on Demand. If it hadn't have been for Pirate Bay 10, 15 years ago... You would not 100% now have agree. video on demand, no, which is one of their largest sources of income. And that's what Alternatives does. It pushes the mainstream to deliver better, more effectively. And I think it will get better and more effectively. And we've got to thank things like Pirate Buy for that. Indeed. And uh, let's move on to our reviews after that then. Uh, we'll certainly <coughs> keep an eye on, on all things going forward. Let's see how easy it will be in the new year to... To track down the uh, Oscar, Oscar nominations, of course, some of them some of them will be on Love Film, guaranteed, and other ones too. One or, one or two are already available on DVD in the UK. Indeed, so, so uh, there we go. Interesting <laughs> times ahead for uh, film watching. So, speaking of film watching, we've watched three this week, and uh, should, should we kick off therefore, Paul, with the first of them, the Danish film, The Salvation. The Salvation. It, in essence, in it's essence, a yeah. Danish western. It's set in the American West. Uh, and it's it's a it's a revenge film, much in in the kind of uh, the forgiven, uh, unforgiven rather Clint Eastwood kind of style, which goes back to yeah. the Searchers and early John Wayne. Uh, man's meets his wife and child coming back from. He he's been here a few years, developing a new life uh, in in the kind of West in the New America. His family join him, some unpleasant things happen, and he then sets about getting revenge, and there's the bad guy in the black hat and the hero in the white hat. It's fairly conventional, but I really enjoyed it. I think it's a cracking little western. I think it's done very well. Mads Mikkelsen looks as gorgeous and <laughs> as lovely as ever. Uh, almost. So does Eva Green. Uh, I just want to put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, much better than she did in Sin City, so uh, anything's better than her. Uh, in City. Disagree. Uh, obviously, yes, as someone has been slagging me off uh, recently for my criticism of Sin City. Uh, I, I think what's interesting is is the, the use of Mikael uh, Persbrandt, again, a big star. He's the James Bond uh, equivalent in Denmark for uh, 
for his character, whose name escapes me, but the Danish do a whole series of films that are Bond-esque, and he is Bondish in it, uh, uh, which uh, which are, which are cracking films, and I'll try and remember it. Mention it next time. It's good to see some English actors in it. Douglas Henshaw who I follow on Twitter, is quite good. Jonathan Price. <laughs> uh, uh, the only thing I think is interesting is, is that the, the, the kind of uh, Mikael Perbsbrandt, who, is, uh, who I think is a really good actor, that role was originally for Mads Mikkelsen's brother. Oh, uh, okay. uh, and in fact, but his brother couldn't do it because he was involved in some long-running TV series, uh, and he couldn't do it because his his brother was he was in Borgen in the original Borgen as the kind of prime minister, uh, kind of see a uh, kind of criminal activity kind of character. He wasn't he was a good guy in the end, but he didn't know that. And so I think that would have been nice to have seen the two brothers, Lars Lars Mickelson, I think he's called. Uh, but it isn't anything startling in the sense of originality, but I think it's well made, it's well shot, it's not overburdened with dialogue in any sense whatsoever. I think it it is, it's a bit like the German westerns that we've seen and those other westerns, is that Goals. it makes you think, that was, I can see the, the, the trauma <laughs> that brought that memory back to you there, but it is interesting to think how America is made up and the West was explored by people mainly from Northern Europe, yeah. who, whose lives were shit in Northern Europe. So the Norwegians, the Swedish, the Danish, uh, the Germans, uh, not particularly the French, I think, but uh, and kind of like Scottish, uh, Irish. And, and I think this film captures a bit of that. So there's people speaking different languages. It, it's not this homogenous hegemonic view of American society as, as one kind of English-speaking assimilated thing. And it's about the building of that nation and, and the people involved. And I really enjoyed it. Well, my own salvation came when the credits started to roll at the end of this fucking thing. <laughs> Pointless, <laughs> senseless vanity project, which ironically enough for a desert, ends up drowning in a well of its own pointlessness and senselessness. You should be a poet. I have not been more disappointed on this podcast all year. I've been more angry, but I have not been as disappointed as I am when I saw this film. All, the, all of the performances are, at best, okay. Yes. Except two. One is Eva Green. Now, you sit there and attack the team behind Sin City 2, and I'll accept one or two of your points on that, but at least in that film, she had some fucking dialogue. Oh, that was the benefit. She goes round with very little clothing on and an ever-so-slightly cut lip. (laughs) At least in City 2, she had nothing on, (laughs) and she had more than a little bit of a cut lip. (laughs) So go hard or go home if you're going to make Eva Green like that. She can't even do that right. The second performance, which was which was not just okay, was Eric Cantona, who was so bad. Eric I'm not, Cantona, I've forgotten I'm that. not so able to even laugh at how bad his performance was. <laughs> you know, which is a far more expressive situation than his, as he just farted about the place with nothing to say or nothing to do for the entire length of the film, except for three lines of dialogue. You know, which were delivered so poorly. It sounded like he was the one that had just been karate kicked in the face by a Manchester United footballer, rather than him doing it to somebody else. Uh. It's not original or unoriginal. It's not funny. It's not gritty. It's not witty. It's not self-deprecating. I.e., all Westerns in the history of cinema are one of those things, at least one of those things. The good ones, the bad ones, Wayne, Eastwood, whatever. This is nothing. It took me four nights to finish a film of one hour and a half's length. 
I was bored shitless. I, I think you came to it with very high expectations. Uh, the other thing I would say is, is I hate uh, uh, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. I think it's a dreadful film in every respect to going. And it was this was much better than that. But, but I accept what you're saying. They're not great performances. I see it as a purely commercial kind of Danish Western. And if you just sit back and enjoy it, it it's not bad. As I said in my bit, it's not original. It's not particularly startling. The dialogue is very minimal, and I'd forgotten the benefit of having no dialogue from Eva Green and the comedy effect of Eric Cantona actually having dialogue, which is, is kind of like, that's just fantastic. Uh, but I, I think if, you, if most people, if you like a Western, you'll like this. It's not great. I, no, I completely disagree. I don't think there's anything in there for Western fans. I don't see it. My, my, regret, my biggest regret for this film, however, is Mads Mikkelsen. Because I'm, I'm now extremely... Con- I would like some of this violence in his previous film that we talked about that he did. Michael Cole has. Because that needed some violence to be a film about vigilantism that has no vigilantism in it. It needed some shooting and things. Or <laughs> killing. Didn't have any of it. This has it, but it's still pointless and vacuous and nothing. Like, I... My, uh, my, I'm looking at Mads Mikkelsen's career now. His last four films. Uh, Charlie's Countryman. A hit at Sundance, therefore shit. Uh, Cole has this... I'm extremely concerned that I have not seen anything good from Mickelson since The Green Butchers and The Hunt. I'm ge- I, seriously, and things between those two films as well, although After the Wedding was okay, uh, what was that bloody one where he played some sort of knight of the round table? I'm a god awful. He has done I'm really concerned that Mads Mickelson is a man that wants to do good, I think but he doesn't know what to do. Yeah, he's turning into an American I, star. This concerns me greatly. And, and it is just turning up in films every He now doesn't and want then. to be Mr. Denmark. Yeah. And I understand that completely, but his best films have been <laughs> Danish films. <laughs> by far. Except for this one, which I didn't like. So I don't know what... But then again, I'm not going to attack him because I don't know what he can do in his situation. Like, he's done the American TV thing, which you said worked, and I'll take your word for that. Not really, yeah, I'm not really a TV fan myself, yeah. particularly. But I can fully imagine that working well. I'm concerned for him, but as, probably as much as he is, to be honest. But here, I'm just plain disappointed. Or, but, but I have to... Well, I'll say one more thing as well. I quite like Christian Levering. I really enjoyed his previous film. His previous film was Fear Me Not, and it was about a man that signs up for a test trial of a new antidepressant drug as a way to change his life. When the trial is called off, he continues taking the medication with uh, dubious results. Yeah. Now, I that was an interesting, evocative, unique way, uh, uh, it, both the way it was delivered, the content, the style. Now, he doesn't do that many films. That had lots of things that this didn't. You had a sense of worth, value. I just don't get, I can't, I just did not get anything from this. And it's all right saying, yes, it's just a Danish Western. Those words don't necessarily fit well together, but if they did, it'd have to be a damn sight better than this for it to work for me. A damn sight better. I don't think pointlessness and Western works all the time. Well, I, I, I'm not going to dispute that too much. I think, uh, and I would agree by and large, but I think if you are a big fan of Westerns and are happy to just see one that's got the genre tropes yeah, that you yeah. would expect. Just like horror film, horror film fans will watch the most 
Awful, bullshit horror, horror films because it fits the tropes. Yeah, and that's what this yeah. does. And I so, and, I, and I, I do quite like that. And so, and it was nice to see. Uh, I think it had a nice, interesting cast. Didn't I think Grid didn't it didn't necessarily work? But I no, think, you don't have to defend <clears throat> it. No, you no, carry <clears throat> on. <laughs> no, no, I think, but I, I, you know, but it's not great art, and it's kind of like it's not on one of the best hundred films of the year, let alone ten or twenty or thirty. But I think if you like westerns, just just, just get it. go with because it. because it, it is nice to see a different kind of western, like the gold one. That you know, I know you didn't like the gold, oh, one. but it was it was interesting to see again a different country's take on it. And again, I think next year we're going to look at an Austrian western uh, done in a kind of that's actually about Austria, which sounds really odd. That's with, with a guy from Leeds in, uh, but again, that that'll be really interesting <laughs> to talk about. And I, and I think you'll see that takes it to another level. That's that's a lot better. But I, you know, I, I'd recommend this if you like westerns. Let's move on. Or looking at Mads Mikkelsen. Which well, yes. Yeah. More for that than the Western itself. There you go. <laughs> All you the Green fans out there. And she, and she does look very nice in it, I must say. But anyway. <laughs> uh, shady. Shady. Misa is bullied at school because of the way she looks and can only call upon her pet goldfish and budgie as friends. That is, until she meets Izume. And as the pair grow closer, Misa is forced to confront her inner demons as well as those around her. Now, I feel a bit sorry for this film, Paul, because we're instantly going to compare it to the other Japanese masterpieces that we've seen, and, and it's obviously going to compare unfavourably, and rightly so, because this is totally different. It's a Japanese film, as I've just hinted. Totally different contrast to the likes of Monosuke, Like Father, Like Son, Great Passage, etc. And even the, even, even the uh, Yakuza film that we mentioned, right on episode one that people cannot access anymore. <laughs> No loss, really. Those are pitch-perfect, high-budget pieces pieces of cinema that look at society's ills and everyday life in Japan. This film is, I suppose you would call it, the Japanese B-movie scene, the indie movie scene, the dark underbelly of Japan. has an undercurrent of unease, rawness, between fellow human beings, which I think was very well accomplished in this film. I thought the performances were quite good, particularly from Izumo. But both characters put off their innocence... Mixed with their dev- devilishness quite well. I thought I thought I quite like the sense of lack of style, therefore, because it does contrast quite well, and I would recommend it for that reason. To see both sides of Japanese cinema, big budget versus not, I would recommend it for that reason as well. Uh, again, don't get me wrong, it's nowhere near being a masterpiece. It's not comfortable to watch at times. I wouldn't even say it was that enjoyable, but as a companion piece to what Japan is capable of, I think it is interesting to see the more, in inverted commas, serious side to Japanese cinema. The real mistrust between Japanese society people within their own to each other. That kind of thing isn't necessarily explored in those high-budget films as much as it is here. And for that reason, I would recommend it. Uh, How did you get on with Shady Paul? Uh, Not well, really. I think it reminded me a lot of those low-budget British films that never see the light of day, that think they're dark comedies, uh, which occasionally they do scrape through. There was the one about the people who go camping, and uh, which I've forgotten what it's called, and it's called something like Strangers or Campers or something. Uh, and, and I think I saw it in that kind of light, and I'm, the British ones tend to be awful. And and this was a little bit better than Perfect. that. Perfect. I'll go uh, on with that. And, and I think, in a way... 
I watched it to the end, which made it, which okay, because, you know, I think we both have a tendency, if we don't like it, we don't watch it. Uh, I think it had some nice ideas. I, it was about the plain girl and the pretty girl. I think there was bits in there about class. Yeah. One was rich, one was poor. About, you know, friends and how they manipulate one another. And there's usually a more manipulative one. And, and the fat girl and the thin girl and all that kind of stuff. And it played with some of those ideas, which, which, which I quite liked. And it did it quite well. I think it didn't do it particularly shockingly enough. No. Nope. Or humorously enough to take it above a kind of fairly ordinary film. Mm-hmm. And I think if you like this kind of genre, you'll like it a bit more than you like a lot of the others in it. Uh, but otherwise, nothing special. But it, it was okay. And it was nice to see uh, it was about girls, women. Uh, and I thought it was nice to see it. But it was about emotion and feelings, which was quite nice, which you don't tend to get a lot of. I thought it was fairly well directed for the low budget that it was. I thought they performed well. So, yeah, okay. Are we in total agreement here? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's therefore move on then. Let's not not spoil this beautiful moment. (laughs) Mr. Turner, my friend, Paul. Mr. Turner. Mr. Turner. Well, as... As uh, As you alluded to in a very, very early episode of of, of this podcast, you are not not on Mike Lee's Christmas card list. Well, someone has, has Facebooked me that they like my my humour and writings because I wrote at one point that I believe in absolute freedom of expression and ability to create for everyone on earth except Mike Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and and in a way, this delivers the pure Mike Lee film on why he should never be allowed to make another film. Because he wastes Great, great actors. Timothy Spall is is a wonderful actor. And I think he delivers what he's supposed to deliver in this. Uh, But it's just awful. It's about 15 hours long. Oh, no, it's only... Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. But it would feel like 15 hours. And it would feel like a year of your life that you'll never get back. It brings nothing to the painter. It brings nothing to his artwork. I'm a great disliker of improvised creativity that is that lacks direction because all you get are the cliched and stereotyped views of everyone involved being synthesised into the cliched and stereotyped views of a director. Uh, it's far too long. The performances are border on the grotesque rather than the human, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. It has no idea what it's doing. That's right. And I do have a theory about that. Turner is seen as the kind of first exploration, explorator of abstract expressionism. Yeah. It's kind of like just a brush stroke to create a feeling and an emotion and to suck you into something by letting you think about it. And I think... That's what Mike Lee thinks he's doing with this film. And he fails miserably. <laughs> <laughs> because the first feeling you have is, is get Timothy Spall to talk properly. Don't have him grunting. There's a great scene where he's in with Ruskin and his son and his wife and they're all pretentious. And all Timothy Spall does throughout <laughs> is goes... <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like... 
get that phlegm up and try and speak some dialogue. So it is irredeemably bad on every aspect that you can go. That borders on the comic. When he goes into the Royal Academy and he goes, Hello, Stubbs. Hello, Constable. Every painter at the time in one room as some kind of comic. It's a bit like if you did a Second World War and you went in a room and you went, Hello, Adolf. Hello, Hess. Hello, yeah. Winston. Hello, uh, <laughs> uh, Mussolini. Hello, Paul. <laughs> and it was like, Oh, God. Oh, yeah. This is shit. Some good performances within the kind of nightmare that it is. Timothy Spall is great, and he's a, such a fantastic person. And I think he does what he's supposed to do. It's just a shame that everything fails to serve him. This is my film of the week. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. Oh! Now, the film is adequate. At the very, very highest level, I could possibly say it's that it's adequate. <laughs> Why is it adequate? Well, yeah, because you, sh- you thought the salvation was shit and shady was okay. Indeed. <laughs> but perhaps the film can even be good because of Timothy Spall. <laughs> he, this is my acting highlight of the entire year. I am just <clears throat> such an ogling fan of Timothy Spall. <clears throat> he is, as far as I'm concerned, Paul, the British Philip Seymour Hoffman. He can do anything. He can do Alvide Saint Pet, Fattest Man, this, and he will be brilliant at it. He could basically sit on a chair and monologue the yellow pages, and I would watch it for five hours. I am such a fan of Timothy Spall. Now, I agree with everything else you've said <laughs> there, <laughs> however. For two and a half hours, it's amazing how little you actually get to learn about William Turner. And that is a massive weakness of the film. But I enjoyed watching Philip. Uh, I enjoyed watching yeah, Philip Seymour. I enjoyed as watch, Timothy Spall. I enjoyed watching Philip Philip Spall Hoffman <laughs> so much in this film. I didn't give a fuck about all the bad points. <laughs> there were in my face. There were really awkward, horrible grunting scenes, particularly in the first ten minutes, where I had no idea about what was being said. I thought I just need to put the hard of hearing subtitles on, literally. But I forgot that because I was too busy, infatuated with Timothy Hoffman Spore. He is just an absolutely wonderful human being. And you did mention there were a couple of other decent performances, and I will agree with that as well. I thought his partner, Mrs. Booth, was excellent. Mm-hmm. And I quite liked some of the other smaller characters. The, the painter who wasn't very good, and the, and he was being debated about... How, the one who painted a picture of an ass. Yep. He was very, very good. I liked the Doctor... Who, who was a big fan of Turner, who, from yep. Margate, the Margate Doctor. He was very, very good in it. I quite like James Fleet. So James Fleet played Mr. Constable. He played Mr. Constable, but then that just whole scene was shit. Yeah, the whole scene was totally <laughs> shit. But the, the performance of Constable, what I think Constable would be like, is okay. Because we don't... These are too old. These are too old. Absolutely. We don't know these people. Yep. So what we interpret these people, what they might be like, I was quite happy with that. A lot... One Academy scene I did like was the was the de- one with the, um, the the debate, not the hello 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 scene. That was rather embarrassing, but I did rather like um, the the argument scene where that that painter who painted an ass he was thrown out of the academy, and there was a massive debate about what art is. I quite enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the scene where two more scenes I'll pull out of ones I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the theatre piece. 
the theatre acting where he, uh, William Turner was in the back of the room yep. enjoying this play about art, but the play was actually mocking him. Yep. I really enjoyed, I thought the acting in that was quite good. That it was well written, it was well <clears throat> well performed, and this, this it looked good on screen. It really does take you back to that era of theatre where it was just matchbox theatre basically. Everyone's crowded together, and, and Tim Spall's reaction to all that. Very, very nice scene. And I also really enjoyed the scene when the royalty is choosing the next piece of artwork. And Tim Spall, uh, Tim Spall's there, William Turner's there. And his reactions to hear him being talked about, that I enjoyed. And I also, as one more scene I enjoyed, I enjoyed the scene where the very rich person who invented the nib... Yep. Very With the well, magnet. The magnet thing, yeah. And the prism. Yeah, I enjoyed that. But I also had a very rich person who wanted to buy his artwork for 100,000 Guinness or and something. he wanted to give it to the nation. Yeah. Yep. That was a nice scene as well. But there is no there is no doubt. It's a far too sloppy film for it to be anything other than what, as is, I would actually say, God's pocket, that film is nothing without its lead actor. This is nothing without Timothy Spall, even if there are some good scenes in it. There are some good actors and actresses to be found elsewhere in it. It's the best British film of the year by far. It <clears throat> doesn't say an awful lot either. Indeed. If we're, gonna, if we're even going to consider Metro Manila in that, which I don't think we can because it's more of a foreign language thing. Yep. Um, look, again, what we both said about it is absolutely true as far as I'm concerned. I just love Timothy Spall to death, Paul. Oh, and no. there is no getting away from that, as you've even admitted yourself. Absolutely, and and he is he is very very good. And in a way, it's the problem. He is the problem for the film. Yeah. Because what everybody likes is Timothy Spall, and they fail to actually notice the creaks and the cracks and the awfulness of it. And it's a shame because I think if Timothy Spall had made this with some uh, a director who uh, was competent and <laughs> creative and able to actually construct a, a kind of narrative and a film with any kind of reason and soundness. I mean, there are so This ma- would have been a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah there are so it, many pointless scenes. I absolutely. Mean, perfect example of Mike Lee for, for what you're explaining. The singing at the, singing at the piano for the party scene. Now, she was quite a good singer. I enjoyed hearing that style of singing. She, she pulls it off quite well. The whole party scene was okay. But she, there were two songs mm. at the party. There was absolutely no need for both of those songs. Either have the traditional... Well, there wasn't really any need for the party, if I remember. Well, well true. Well, <laughs> it, it, just to, <laughs> it, it's, it's essentially following Turner, walking about the place in various parts of his life. There are a lot of pointless walking about scenes. As in Aurora, the long Romanian film. Which again goes back to my point that I actually think he's trying to create a feeling, yeah. an expression. By having an pointless scenes, endless pointless scenes, and that's fine. Now, there were two songs in this film at that party. There was the more traditional song, then there was the, the naughty song. The bawdy one. The bawdy song. Now, I don't think the film needed both of those for the message it tries to portray of a party, the class, the wealth. Turner's life, Turner's people that he deals with. You could have got away with either the baldy one or the other one, and you've had this to keep the, the scene going for 12, 13 minutes long, for the sake of a very, very short guy with glasses to run out embarrassed, for all of the upper class to go, ha ha ha, how amusing. Mm. You don't need it. 
but you do need it. One or the other will do, and that is Lee's problem. There are far too many scenes of the same type in this film, and you think, I've got your point, move on to a fucking narrative exploration point, please. Let's not stay on this same bit of cobble forever. Forever. I mean, that, that, they are... But the, the, how, much, how much of it is his fault? How much is it that he just cannot get the right editor? Because this should easily be, Paul, a one hour and a half film. At most. There is no doubt about that. And I enjoyed Spall so much, the two and, a half, two and a half hours did go reasonably quickly. A lot more quickly than The Salvation. Because The Salvation had no performances for me that I could enjoy and get into. Whereas when you do find a performance that you get into, time does fly. But there is still no defence in the fact that this is a one hour f- too longer film. So again, I ask, is it because of Lee? Is it because of the editing? Or is it because Lee has too much control over the editing? Or that he believes in his thing so much that he doesn't want anything taken out? Well, but it's interesting because I, I bet his original edit was probably about five hours long. Uh, and so I think... He, Only special features on the DVD were tell us. Does he give out interviews? Uh, well, he did a major Imagine interview for uh, the Alan Yentop on the BBC. Uh, but even there, someone said that Mike Lee came across as this wonderful, creative, witty human being. And then they wrote, <laughs> why doesn't he get any of that in his films? But in a way, it's a difficult one, really, because Timothy Spall is brilliant that uh, Mike Lee tried to cover too much, uh, too many things, and it's kind of like, why didn't he make three films with Timothy Spall, much more focused, which actually would have made, been a lot more sense, a lot more enjoyable, and actually, but again... This I, should have been a BBC Four six-part series. Absolutely, and it, it, not done by him, though, obviously. No, no, uh, please <laughs> not. <laughs> and hopefully the BBC will commission that with some decent uh, writers and whatever. But I think it's a problem because there were times where you thought even Timothy Spall is going too far. With the scene you in the Ruskin know, house. You can have to let me know the scenes here. Because well, I'll, it's it, the team with the, with the, the kind of pseudo-intellectual Ruskins where yeah. he literally doesn't say anything. The others are talking for ages and he goes... <laughs> and then he has one little line at the end and it's kind of like... That's just that's too Lee. much. That's Lee thinking he's funny. Uh, if only. I, I think he thinks, it's again, it's, it's about like creating a feeling. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just but it's But it's, it's, um, but he is, it's you can follow the grunts from the beginning to the end. And you'll notice that by the end, he grunts a lot less apart from when he's dying. <laughs> but for, for, for most of the film, the grunts get less when he becomes happier. So maybe he is using this some sort of a, a spiritual journey via grunting. Which is utterly bizarre, executed atrociously, and a terrible idea which I don't like. But I'm just trying to get into his head, which I can't do, because it's a bizarrely made film. There's no two ways about it. And I think one of his other weaknesses is, because it's so long, you start looking at the, yeah. at the setups, yeah. at the scenery, yeah. at the sets. And I thought, it made you, I ended up thinking, well, the sets, they've done the people as far too grubby, and then the sets are far too clean. And the little seaside front set... Just looked so artificial. I, I quite liked it though. I liked the but, little the little room in the house. I liked the little room, but when he was walking along the seafront, and I thought this is such a made up little set. Yeah. Even if it's like a real place and that they've decorated, and, I, that, that I just thought, I'm th- oh, you're making me think. They kind this. of alluded to plague-like symptoms for one of the people in the film, but that was kind of like a complete afterthought. Like, 
And I thought, hang on, is she just dirty or has she got the plague? Yeah, or has she got something? Yeah, like a scurvy or something. God yeah. knows what. I just, I did. There's a. There, I would recommend this for Tim Spore. Only. I, 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 only. I want people to watch this film desperately because of that. Everything. That, but I also want people to watch this <clears> film for the bad reasons that we've said. Because I think it's interesting to watch something so confused. Just to kind of get your own head around it and try and get your head... Because, of course, what, what is any, any film about is trying to get into the director's head. Mm. Sometimes he presents things very clearly to you. Sometimes he presents things clouded, shrouded with mystery. For you to make your own mind and bring, and bring things that you bring to your own film. I know, for example, we talked about this last podcast. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a discussion point, and I would much rather there be a discussion point than not. Well, I hope that when he dies, someone buys this and edits it into a one hour 30 and turns it into black and white with a little bit of a Chirosky light and dark shading in the, the kind of contrast. The fact that I've rec- been really good. The, fa- the very fact, before we move on, the very fact that I can recommend this above the salvation is worrying. It is. But that is the situation it that I am me. comfortably in, Paul. Comfortably. When you've enjoyed looking at Timothy Spall rather than Mads Mikkelsen. That is something very, very wrong. But anyway, <laughs> Christmas films, Paul. Now, we, bo- we were both going to uh, recommend one film. Just, I would say recommend because people have seen these. There's no two ways about it. But things that we like, Christmas films that we like. Now, don't about yourself, Paul, but there haven't been too many classic Christmas films. There haven't been. And I realised that myself when I was trying to discuss, decide which ones I wanted to put forward. Um, and it's this weird thing. Christmas films like, don't know about yourself, but Christmas, the, if you're going to put a Christmas film as a genre, which perhaps we can, I think we let Christmas films get away with an awful lot of stuff that other films we would forgive them for. Mm. You know, the, the notion of, for, for example, a consistent narrative, things, make, things making sense, things being legitimised, things being real, things being believable. Don't most of those things kind of fall by the wayside for Absolutely. Christmas? Because yep. it's the whole magical thing, believing in something greater that... The greater good of humanity. The greater good of humanity. You know, people rising above themselves to do good, which... We know does not happen in real life, particularly. Uh, it's so you know, looking at these films. Some of them you've put forward. Some of them have it. Some of them don't. But it doesn't really matter whether those things are there or not. Mm-hmm. If it this this tangible thing of Christmas, that we know what it is, but in a film, it's not always there. It's something to be felt. That doesn't make me feel Christmassy. Christmassy as a, as an adjective, as a verb, even. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bizarre setup on the outset for me, anyway. So, we'll get interested in talking about some things that you've put forward for this. Why? So, as a selection, you've got a little selection there. Why have you put these forward for... Why do you enjoy these more than others? Uh, well, partly... Well, my big problem is is I don't like Christmas. Well, right. I, I really <laughs> don't like Christmas. And then the other thing is, is Christmas, to me, means... And it comes back to that kind of pirate by discussion at the beginning was the opportunity to see films that you hadn't seen before. So actually, I was going to put all Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger films, although none of them are about Christmas, because it was the only time you got to see them on television. 
because particularly when I was younger, all the old black and white films were, were wheeled out in kind of seasons, Billy Wilder seasons or Humphrey Bogart seasons. And that's what Christmas, the good thing about Christmas meant, was actually seeing films that you'd wanted to see but couldn't see any other time. Uh, and they were nothing to do with Christmas because I didn't like that. And then I, I thought, well, let's look up some of the Christmas films. And actually looking through lists of Christmas films, the ones I liked most I had never thought of as Christmas films. So The Long Kiss Goodbye with Gina Davis, uh, Die Hard and Die Hard 2. Now, I don't in my head think of them as Christmas movies, but they're set at Christmas and yeah. they're all around Christmas. And when you think, oh yeah, there's a lot of snow in it and it is about trying to get back to Christmas. And in a way, that's why I like them. The Shop Around the Corner has got a woman called Maureen, uh, Margaret Sullivan, who I, when I was 10, thought she was absolutely gorgeous. And it turned out she was because she was a mental case, and I always liked mental cases. Topped herself in the end. Uh, and the other good films are those films that don't make you think, for me, about Christmas. Mm -hmm. So The Apartment is, is, is a Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine film, or, which is about a Christmas party, and it's about people being lonely. And that's what I liked about that, was the exploration of human relationships. And Gremlins, again, and it made me actually think oh, that's a Christmas movie. Mm. And I hadn't really thought about it. Gremlins. You know, I love Gremlins. I think Gremlins is a great film. But I never associate it with Christmas, despite the fact it's all about Christmas. Uh, and obviously we had to get, there's a few foreign language films. The French love family dramas. I think there's Jordan. They do, yes. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of those that I really like, but they're often, and I like the French take on it, because it's kind of like they're, they're often pretty miserable. They don't have happy endings, and families want to kill themselves at the end. So, but you're sitting there in your family watching that, thinking, well, we've got a good setup here. Absolutely. I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, we don't want to kill one another. <laughs> Make sure appreciate yet. what you've got. Yeah. Danish have a very similar attitude. <laughs> so, so then it brought it down to actually the Christmas film. And I think even a lot of Christmas films that do have that things where you let them go away are utter shite. I, I, one Grinch. On, the Grinch is awful. The, the the Martin Freeman nativity film. That's it. They are truly atrocious, abysmal. And the one with Whoopi Goldberg with white dreadlocks. Where that's she play, it. Yeah, where she plays Santa. <laughs> truly atrocious. <laughs> I mean, they, they are irredeemably bad. It's just, <laughs> but one that we both going to talk about now for a bit. Mm -hmm. We both agree on is the true masterpiece in my opinion. Yep, Elf. Elf. Now I have to say this for me is by far my favourite Will Ferrell movie. Uh, I would agree. I would agree. I would say I took up watching all Will Ferrell movies because of Elf. Exactly the same. Uh, and I think, you know, and he has almost invariably failed to deliver. I think so. Anything yeah. equaling that. And I think it is too, and it's why I love Will Ferrell, that he has, and he has said he always will, despite being offered over $20 million to make Elf 2. And that is to his credit. And, and I, I love the man for that. I think he's got a great cast. Again, the old lot, the new lot. Peter Dinklage. James Kahn. James Kahn, absolutely. <laughs> From The Godfather to Elf. He looks so uncomfortable, <laughs> but in a good way. Absolutely. He, he, he knows that, what the hell am I doing this yeah. for? But he pulls that off brilliantly, this this father who... I mean, Elf is basically somebody from a long lost, long lost North, North Pole, isn't it, essentially? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he's sent to the US to search for his real father. Yeah, James Conn's the father, who is a very, very serious book publisher man. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, 
the whole thing is is absolutely bizarre because Will Ferrell is an elf who's far too big because he's not really an elf. Exactly. But he was abandoned. He was abandoned. Peter Dinklage is more the elf, and I think we all know what we're saying. Indeed, yeah. but uh, it, it's oh, it's, it's it's such a ludicrous film that it's just brilliantly made, well acted by everybody, and it's before everybody because in fact I was stunned. It's two thousand and three, so that's like. 10, uh, 10, 11 it years been, ago. It could have been made last year. Absolutely. It, it, it just well, maybe goes to prove how Wizard Ones have not taken anything further. But but it's nice to see everybody involved. It's before they became caricatures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so even Will Ferrell has become a bit of a character yeah. of himself. Zoe Deschanel is still a very beautiful, charming yeah. uh, woman in that, rather than the character she's become. Peter Dinklage quite early in his career, so he's nice. Bob Newhart playing a kind of, you know, and James Caan. Very, very kind of stereotype characters for who they are in the in cinema, but actually done with a, with a lot of wit and charm. And obviously, I'd forgotten that it was done by John Favreau before he became the kind of egomaniac of Iron Man 1, 2, 3 and all of that kind of stuff. So, And, and again, the the writers, it was it was at the beginning, they'd done some stuff, so it's not a first film. It's, um, it's, it's kind of like it was the perfect moment for them all to come together to deliver actually an ensemble film mm-hmm. rather than an ego project, which is what you tend to get, like The Grinch. The Grinch is an ego project. It's all about Jim Carrey, and that's why it fails miserably. Marvellous stuff. I mean, I mean, it's... Um, I mean, how, I'm sure you like Elf so much, because it is, again, probably one of those you wouldn't necessarily... It's about Christmas. Mm. Yes, he's an elf. Mm. Yes, he's from the North Pole. Yes, there's some Santa things in there. Yes, there's reindeer at the end. But it's not screaming Christmas to me, yep. necessarily, which is quite interesting, I think. Mm. It's humanity. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, it is more the humanity yeah. side, which... Indecency. Yeah. And, and it's not... Which a lot of some of the other films probably fall into overly sentimental. There's some nice dark humour. Yeah. There's some questioning, and a bit like Gremlins. Gremlins, there's a lot of dark humour. Well, some, fa- some, some of my favourite scenes from Elf are in the the post office area, where he just he just makes people he makes people happy there by dancing on the thing and yeah. making entertainment by putting things up the chutes, which again is some sort of a play for like the traditional way of North Pole presents being delivered to the world. It's it's all good stuff, really, Elf. It's I, I've not I've never spoken to anybody who doesn't like Elf. And, and I it's think, a modern masterpiece. It's not a two-hour Well, and it's funny because I think now there's, there's a few TV channels called like True Movies. Christmas 24. 24. And they are 24-hour Christmas movies. And every other film is a cheap shit rip-off of Elf. Yeah. And, and so it's actually a genre With somebody that dies thing. in it, yes. might I add. Somebody <laughs> always dies in these films. <laughs> Because <laughs> as if that, again to make you appreciate that maybe somebody you're sitting next to isn't dead yet, you <laughs> just think. But no, but the point is these films are so bad that I actually want to go and kill myself. <laughs> Christmas twenty four movies twenty four true movies twenty four. I hope to God we're not attacking our listeners on this. Surely they're more intelligent than to sit down and watch Tribe. Like I would that. just rather watch Elf twenty four hours. I honestly would. I mean, that would send you crazy as well, but in a good way. Indeed, indeed. So that is pretty much it for episode 23 of the Outside Centre Film Podcast. We will be back in a matter of days to do the final episode of this year where we will be discussing your list for film of the year, Yep. my list for film of the year, and our joint list before reaching a decision for your film of the year. And one or two surprises. And my film of the year, along with two other films that we haven't even reviewed on the podcast that we'd like to recommend. So please do join us for that. But most importantly, 
To everybody, thank you so much for listening to us over the year. And a very Merry Christmas. (laughs) 